1: It's the dog days of summer. That means extreme August heat, final getaways, and for the fourth consecutive year, another COVID surge. Both my
2: husband and I contacted COVID in June.
3: My wife and I had COVID over the summer.
2: We're both vaccinated and boosted.
3: For me, it was barely an allergy attack.
0: Wouldn't you know this summer, I came down with COVID.
4: her, she was bed bound for about four days.
0: Unfortunately, after three and a half years, I finally came down with COVID. On July 24th, I got off a cruise ship in Seattle, Washington, and tested positive for COVID two days later. My youngest son contracted COVID from a summer camp he attended.
3: I have an infant son that got it
4: as well, and he... Even noticed.
1: Thanks for all those messages. The World Health Organization declared the pandemic over three months ago. There was a 12% spike in hospitalizations, according to the latest tracking data from the Centers for Disease Control. That data is from July 23rd to July 29th and is compared to the week prior. For this installment for our In Good Health series, we discuss with our panel of experts how we should think about COVID, masking, and vaccines in our everyday lives. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us.
4: This message comes from NPR's sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. TeleDoc Health understands whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight. TeleDoc Health can help. Visit TeleDocHealth.com/slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T E L A D O C Health/slash What's Your Why.
1: Let's get into the conversation and welcome our guests. Dr. Celine Gounder is a senior fellow and editor-at-large for Public Health with KFF Health News, formerly known as Kaiser Health News. Dr. Gounder, thanks for coming back on. Great to be here. Also with us is Dr. Paul Offit. He's the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He's also a member of the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Panel. Dr. Offit, it's great to have you back.
3: Thanks for asking me.
1: And Angela Rasmussen is with us. She's a virologist at the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization at the University of Saskatchewan. She's also an adjunct professor at Stony Brook University. Angie, welcome back.
5: Thanks for having me back, Jen.
1: So, Dr. Gounder, this is our fourth consecutive summer living with COVID-19. How does the current summer surge compare to previous surges we've experienced?
2: Yeah, I wouldn't call it a surge the way it's being characterized. If you look at where we were starting from, maybe about 6,000 hospital hospital admissions across the country per week in June or so from COVID, we're up to maybe 9,000 now. Yes, there's been an increase, but it's an increase over a relatively low level And clearly, vaccines are working. Uh, Vaccines are keeping people out of the hospital. They're preventing deaths. uh, And that is precisely why we vaccinate. It's not necessarily to prevent the mild infections that some of your listeners described, but to keep people out of the hospital and alive.
1: Do we know how many Americans are vaccinated at this point?
2: Oh, it's uh, something like three-quarters or more are now vaccinated. And in places like New York City, where I live, it's over 80%. And so certainly uh, where vaccination rates are higher, you're probably going to see even more of an impact. Uh, And I will say I still am, in fact, seeing some patients who are being hospitalized for covid but they have all, by the way, uh, not been vaccinated.
1: Mm. Now, there's been an increase, as we said, in the number of people hospitalized with the virus in recent weeks, and those hospitalizations have overwhelmingly been for people 65 and older. Dr. Offit, what risk does the current COVID variant pose to an elderly person who is up-to-date on their vaccinations?
3: I think the same as previous variants. Um, The the current variant, the uh, EG.5 variant, um, doesn't appear to be any more or less virulent than, than previous variants. I know we, we like to believe that the Omicron variant was less virulent, but there was a recent study in Hong Kong to suggest that's not true. But I think impor- it's important, that Dr. Gander pointed this out, is that people who are in these high-risk groups, meaning people who are elderly or people who have comorbidities or people who are immunocompromised, those are the ones who are most likely to be hospitalized. Those are the ones who are most likely to die. And although clearly those are the ones who are most likely to benefit from a booster dose, they're also the ones who benefit from taking an anti antiviral early in the illness. And I, I think that tends to be um, underused and, and could avoid some of these hospitalizations should people realize they need to get that antiviral early in the course.
1: Angie, what more can you tell us about this new variant, EG5? They're calling it ARIS?
5: Yes. So um, I, I don't call it ARIS. I think that there's really too many variants uh, at this point to keep track of um, by by giving them all nicknames. But E 5 I think what people really need to keep in mind about it, and all of the XBB alphabet super variants that came before it and are still circulating, by the way, are all derivatives of Omicron. So they are all still effectively Omicron, Um, given that they are uh, Omicron essentially with with additional changes, um, usually changes in the spike protein that can make them uh, a little bit better at infecting people who've been previously infected or vaccinated. Um, doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to have other properties that are very different from the other Omicron variants. And specifically, there's no data that I'm aware of that suggests that EG5 is more pathogenic or causes more severe disease than XBB1 through 1.16, etc., or any of the Omicron variants that have come before it. And in fact, um, Omicron at least in animal studies and with the epidemiological data that we've been gathering over the last year and a half, um, does appear to be somewhat uh, less pathogenic um, and milder uh, in many people than the variants of concern that came before, such as Delta and Alpha. We
1: got this email from Karen who says, My husband has type 1 diabetes and we're going to Europe in September. Our doctors recommended getting boosters. We've had all our vaccines to date. The only booster available is the old one, not the new one. Can we get the existing booster now? And later in the winter, can we get the updated booster? Before we even get to boosters, Dr. Gounder, just remind us what it means to be fully vaccinated.
2: Well, so at this point, um, we would say you've completed a primary series. If you got the first two doses, we would say you're up to date if you've uh, stayed up to date with each of the additional booster doses. So for some people, that might be four or even more doses of vaccine. Um, But at this stage in the pandemic, um, if you've been fully vaccinated, so you've gotten the initial primary series, you've gotten at least one or a couple boosters, unless you're in a super high-risk group, uh the booster may top you off for a couple months in terms of your immunity, but it's not what's going to likely make the difference uh, in terms of hospitalization. So somebody with type 1 diabetes, if it's well-controlled, is probably not at very high risk, uh, but if they have had periods where their diabetes is less well-controlled, they're perhaps older people, uh, they have other uh, risk factors, then I would push harder to be getting a booster. And with respect to the question of the old booster versus the new booster, um, I think what's most important is you get a booster when you need it. Uh, The updated boosters are most likely to be available come October. And yes, they'll be tweaked a little bit for uh, the XBB variant, uh, but I think by and large, even the old booster would still be helpful.
1: And Michael Scott emails, how long do boosters remain effective? Do you need another booster after six months? Dr. Offit, what can you tell
3: us? Right. Well, so as Dr. Gowner pointed out, would. What- the booster does is it increases your your level of circulating antibodies for say four to six months which gives you better protection against mild illness but i think what people need to realize is that if you look back at the original strain the so-called ancestral strain or wuhan one strain and then go right up to the current strains the xbb strains or the eg5 strain what they all share in common are recognition sites by t-cells and although we we only talk about antibodies it seems and b-cells which make antibodies t-cells are really important in protection against severe disease. T-cells have names like helper T-cells and cytotoxic T-cells, which kill virus-infected cells. And, and those recognition sites remain pretty much conserved from the beginning to, to right now, which is why we are, for the most part, still protected against serious illness, even though this virus becomes more immune- evasive for protection against mild disease. It really hasn't become more immune- evasive for protection against severe disease. So I think this gets to Dr. Gounder's point that sort of all booster doses work in the sense because they all have those shared sort of T cell recognition sites. And to the question, how often
1: should people get boosters? Does it depend on your comorbidities, your
3: age? Give us some guidance. I think so. I I think that that where the CDC can help us the most is to to educate us about who is getting hospitalized by this virus, who is dying from this virus, what are their ages, what what exactly are their comorbidities, Um, what vaccines have they gotten, when was their most recent vaccine, have they taken antivirals, and then we can focus on who most likely benefits. What we did last year was we said everybody over six months of age should get a booster dose, but not everybody equally benefits. I think we really should focus on those who are most likely to benefit, so I would argue a healthy person less than 65 years of age is not going to benefit much from a booster dose. And I do think we need to get used to the fact that this virus is going to be circulating for years, if not decades, if not longer. And we're always going to be susceptible to mild illness, as we are for many of these respiratory viruses. But we should be protected against severe illness. And the question is, for how long, based on your age and comorbidities? We're heading
1: to a quick break here. When we return, we answer your questions on how to protect you and your loved ones. Stay with us.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore.
2: Last year, over 20,000
5: people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Let's
1: get back to this installment of In Good Health. Dr. Gounder, the CDC released a study last month that found one in four Americans still haven't caught COVID by the end of 2022. Why do you think Erica's seeing so many first-time COVID patients this summer?
2: Well, I think uh, people are letting down their guard. Uh, A lot of people were masking uh, up until even this past winter and spring. And um, I don't think it's unreasonable, frankly, for people to be taking off those masks in many situations uh, with all of the immunity that's been built up now with the vaccination. We're just in a very different place than we were. That said, I don't disagree with your caller that there is still value in certain situations in wearing a mask, whether that's a, say, crowded movie theater in the dark or on an airplane. Um, but, you know, when once you do let down your guard, you are exposing yourself to infection.
1: We got this email from Melanie who says, I'm traveling to Fort Lauderdale this weekend. Is it worth wearing a mask, non-N95, or should I find an N95 Uh, What do you think, Dr. Gounder?
2: Well, the N95 masks are the most protective. Um, I think for the general public, a KN95 or a KF94 are uh, more uh, tolerable to wear. They're um, not quite so tight on the face. Uh, not quite so hot on the face, and yet they're still very highly protective. And so I think that's a good compromise. Um, The surgical masks and cloth masks don't seem to provide that much protection. So if you're going to mask... I would say, um, you know, opt for at least a KN95. Um,
1: we also got this email from Jane, Oklahoma, who says, I still haven't caught COVID. With my lung conditions, I'm still trying not to roll the dice by masking, boosting and careful socialization. How prevalent are cases of long term symptoms after even mild infection? Dr. Offit, what can you tell us?
3: Well, it can certainly happen so so what you can do is everything that this uh, this caller is asking to do which is is do the best you can to protect yourself so if you're in a situation where you're going to be surrounded by a lot of people in a close in a closed indoor situation wear a mask um, like a kn95 mask um, if you if you acquire covid you know make sure that you um, or, or do everything you can to to boost yourself you're in a high-risk situation which it sounds like she is with a chronic lung condition and do the best you can. But, you know, I think it's going to be uh, tough because, you know, for for a long time now, we are going to be facing a virus that is circulating, that's going to be causing mild disease in many people. And um, I think coming off 2020, where we were so scared of this virus because we had nothing. We had didn't have vaccines. We didn't have antivirals. We didn't have uh, monoclonal antibodies. We had nothing. And And we knew it was spread asymptomatically. And so, you know, we sort of are still living through the post-traumatic stress disorder of that year. But for most people who are otherwise healthy and less than 65, they're going to get a mild infection. And if you you feel you're in a high-risk group, then do everything you can to decrease that by masking, making sure you've gotten your booster doses, make sure you treat early. Uh, That's the best you can do. But this virus isn't going away.
1: Let's go back to our voicemail box. Here's a message we got from Mary in New York.
0: I'm 90 years old, and I escaped all the three years of the pandemic by having all of the boosters. And wouldn't you know, this summer, I came down with COVID. And I'm thankful for all the boosters because it lasted almost two to three weeks, but it wasn't extremely serious. And I can imagine what it would have been like if I had avoided the boosters.
1: So Mary is very thankful she got all the boosters, but a KFF survey from January found just 47% of seniors 65 years and older received their most recent booster. Dr. Gounder, what's the challenge of getting more seniors boosted?
2: I think people are confused at this stage about whether they need boosters or not. And I think this is where clearly messaging... Look, you know, a wider uh, proportion of the population may be eligible, so um, may be able to get vaccinated if they want to. But who really needs to get vaccinated with a booster right now is people who are older, uh, in particular over 65, 75, people who have underlying um, uh, chronic medical conditions, who are, uh, people who are immunosuppressed, pregnant women. Um, unfortunately, we haven't done a very good job of vaccinating pregnant women, and that is a risk factor for more severe COVID. Um... Those are the the groups of people. Oh, and I forgot nursing homes, people living in in nursing homes and other group settings. But those are the groups of people that if you're one of those people, you absolutely should be lining up to get yourself a booster.
1: We got this message from a member of the tax club who says, my 62-year-old daughter was denied a booster last spring. They said her fatty liver, obesity, and chronic muscular pain did not qualify her for the vaccination. Is this right? Uh, Dr. Offit, what are the situations where people may be denied boosters?
3: Well, you know, that's that's an unfortunate story. I think someone who, is, who has obesity is at higher risk. I mean, that certainly is a risk factor. And this is someone who would, I think, clearly benefit from a booster, so I don't think that was the best advice. Um, but as Dr. Gounder said, I think she listed those groups who are most likely to benefit. We'll see what happens this year. I mean, last year we recommended this vaccine as a booster for everybody over six months of age. I'm curious to hear what the CDC says. This year my suspicion is, is or my hope anyway, is that they target to the groups that Dr. Gounder mentioned.
1: Dr. Ganner, how I mean, with the research that that still needs to be done on long COVID, even if people aren't concerned about severe illness from an infection, how do you manage that that risk budget? Right, like you say, okay, I might not get very very ill from the infection right away, but I also may contract or deal with long COVID after the infection has has passed.
2: Well, this is where maybe you are somebody who wants to get a booster um, just to minimize your risk as much as possible. Uh, there are, remember, other tools we can use to lower risk, which include wearing a mask, particularly in public crowded spaces. You might want to get yourself a HEPA air filtration unit. Um, you can also build yourself a Corsi box, C-O-R-S-I. You can go on YouTube and see how to build one. At a materials that you can buy at any hardware store um, for a bit cheaper than a HEPA air filtration unit would cost. Cost. And air filtration is beneficial not just for COVID, but for all respiratory viruses, for environmental pollutants, for wildfire smoke, for any number of reasons. And so, it's a it's a useful tool to be having around. So, uh, big picture, I think um, you know we need to be layering different kinds of preventive measures, particularly if you are concerned, and then accessing diagnosis and treatment early. um, As Dr. Offit mentioned earlier, elderly people really stand to benefit. And there are some early signals that um, getting treated early may also help prevent development of long COVID.
1: We're talking about coronavirus and vaccines in the latest installment of our monthly series in good health. Coming up, we get to more of your questions and learn what public health agencies are doing now to prevent the next pandemic. Stay with us.
4: This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on.
0: When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at betterhelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. Now let's get back to your questions on the state of COVID
1: this summer. We got this message from one of you.
0: My youngest son contracted COVID from a summer camp he attended. And he then got his older brother sick who has a disability and was planning to go to a summer camp himself, which he then had to miss because the camp that he goes to is also for kids with disabilities and medical issues. And so we didn't want to make anyone at that camp sick. So we kept him home. It was over my birthday. It was terrible. So COVID is still a concern for us. It's a concern for our community because of individuals with disabilities, and we're trying to keep them from getting
1: sick. Angela in Nebraska, thanks for that message, and we're sorry about your birthday. Dr. Offed. talk to us about the risk for specifically kids with disabilities and what they face if they contract COVID.
3: Right. Certainly, uh, children who have um, chronic lung disease or chronic heart disease or diabetes or, 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 or severely overweight those are the ones who are most likely to suffer severe disease, causing them to be hospitalized or worse. So, so we need to protect those people. We need to protect them by making sure that those around them are vaccinated and that those around them, if they are uh, infected or think they might be infected, test themselves and, 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 and isolate themselves or at least mask when they're around those people. So you're right. I, th- I think the- these are the groups that we most need to focus on are those who are most at risk. No, we mentioned
1: the new COVID booster that will likely be authorized by this fall. Medical experts predict there will be a resurgence of the flu and RSV this fall as well. Angie, how should parents think about the flu and about RSV shots for the new school year? School has already started for some kids.
5: Yeah, so um we do know uh that that certainly school and the fall and winter in general are uh prime time for seasonal respiratory viruses. Um, And so certainly at minimum, I think parents should be uh, making sure that their kids are getting their annual seasonal influenza shot. Um, I think that that is one thing that still not enough people do. Um, They should be getting it themselves as well as their kids um, to to really prevent um, severe disease uh, and in many cases to prevent influenza altogether. Um, So with RSV, and uh, I'd be also curious to hear Dr. Offit's perspective on this, but there's a new RSV vaccine that has been approved. Uh, My understanding is that it's approved only for infants and toddlers at this time, however. Um, So people do uh, need to be thinking about RSV um, at the same time as they are thinking about flu. And last year we had a a really terrible RSV surge um, in the country as well. But I, I really do believe that if Parents are going to do anything they need to make sure that their kids are fully up to date with the recommended vaccinations prior to going back to school. And then uh, on top of that, as Dr. Gounder alluded to earlier, you can layer additional levels of protection on top of those vaccines. Um, Talk to your school uh, about the air quality, um, any measures they're taking to improve that indoor air quality. Um, If your kids are sick, though, uh, keep them home don't send them to school. Um, if you yourself are sick, stay home and don't go to work. Uh, don't Don't go out in the world. Um, simple measures like that will uh, continue to reduce um, the risk beyond what vaccines can offer of kids picking up uh, seasonal respiratory bugs at school.
1: Dr. Offit, your thoughts on the RSV uh, vaccine Angie was mentioning?
3: Right, so, so it's not an, an, a vaccine as we classically think of it, in that it doesn't provide active immunity like the other vaccines. It's a monoclonal antibody, like the monoclonal antibodies we used against SARS-CoV two. Um, it's a long acting monoclonal antibody; it lasts at least five months and probably longer. And finally, I think we have something in hand that can prevent this this disease, which is probably the most common reason for children to be hospitalized. Um, it's the recommendation is that for everyone less than eight, everyone, all children less than eight months of age receive this this uh, this monoclonal antibody and if it can be given at the t- time that you're giving uh, other vaccines before the, the season and the season the RSV season usually begins around October it peaks sort of in December January it starts to fade around March so that's that's the goal is that, that, that if your child's less than 8 months of age that they get this monoclonal antibody before the season and people think well you know it's really my child's not in a high risk group but 80% of children who are hospitalized with RSV are otherwise That's why the recommendation was for everyone less than eight months of age and then for the second RSV season Um, For the 8- to 19-month-old, that was just recommended for high-risk groups.
1: Angie, researchers across the globe are developing vaccines to stop the next global disease outbreak. The BBC reported earlier this week about the laboratory at Porton Downs in the United Kingdom. And they're researching the threat from known viruses like avian flu and unforeseen viruses like COVID was in 2020, which they've termed disease X. Tell us more about the work being done at your lab around pandemic research and preparedness.
5: Yeah. So um, this is actually why I moved from the U.S. to Canada, um, is because of what we are doing here at at Vito, where I work. Um, We operate one of the largest containment labs in North America. And one of the things that happened early on in the pandemic here in Canada was it became very apparent very quickly what some of Canada's infrastructure shortcomings were. Um, So Canada did not have, for example, domestic vaccine manufacturing capacity. We do have uh, excellent research facilities, and we had previous experience with a SARS outbreak that occurred in Toronto in 2003. Um, But there wasn't really the the infrastructure here needed to respond rapidly to, to SARS coronavirus, too. Um, So uh, the Canadian government um, and the U.S. government and governments around the world have been investing to to try to overcome these gaps uh, in their in their preparedness. And one thing we're doing is we have uh, stood up um, a high containment vaccine manufacturing facility that will support rapid uh, manufacturing of vaccines that can be used in clinical trials here in Canada domestically with the idea that that would then um, be fed into other manufacturing facilities that are being built throughout the country to provide those vaccines uh, at scale for the Canadian population and also for the world. Um, another thing that we're doing, which is really the side of things that I work on, is we're upgrading to the maximum containment level possible, which is biosafety level four, so that we can work on uh, pathogens that are, at, are a danger of becoming a pandemic that have not yet but that are um, extremely pathogenic and uh, have very high mortality rates. So things like Ebola virus, Marburg virus, Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever virus, and so on. Um, And I think it's really important for countries all over the world to have this capacity. Um, Here, we are trying to become uh, Canada's National Pandemic Research Centre with the express goal of being able to rapidly and effectively respond to an emerging pandemic threat, whether it's a known or unknown pathogen, we need to make sure though, that other countries are going to be able to do this too. And really importantly, and this applies to Canada, the US, everywhere, we need to make sure that these efforts are sustained Um, because that is one thing I think globally that has really impacted preparedness uh, worldwide. And that is the, the fact that when something like this happens, um, we see this with the coronaviruses with SARS. There's a sudden uptick in interest. People are studying it more. They're making vaccines. Uh, they're they're doing research to make sure we're prepared for it. And then SARS went away. And so all of that investment, all of that research went away. Same thing happened with MERS. And now, unfortunately, the same thing is actually happening with SARS coronavirus, mm. too. We need to make sure that these efforts are sustained and that we can continue to actually be prepared for pandemics, since we really don't know what one might be coming next.
1: I, I want to take a trip back to 2014. Then President Barack Obama gave a speech in Bethesda, Maryland at the National Institutes of Health.
5: There
4: may and likely will come a time in which we have both an airborne disease that is deadly. And in order for us to deal with that effectively, we have to put in place an infrastructure not just here at home, but globally, that allows us to see it quickly, isolate it quickly, respond to it quickly.
1: And that speech is nearly a decade old. Dr. Gounder, is that infrastructure in place yet in the U.S.?
2: Well, and just to remind everyone, that was at the time of the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And having been on the ground and seeing the money coming in to build up health um, systems in, in countries that were very high risk for seeing these kinds of diseases emerge, And then seeing how quickly that money dried up. And in a way, that's really a waste when you just flood a ton of money in, you don't maintain what you're building up, you let it atrophy. We make these mistakes over and over and over again. And over the summer, Congress was debating the budget for the CDC, for example, and dramatically cut the budget again. Um, And so I think it's very frustrating to see these same cycles repeat themselves over and over where... We surge funding and interest, and then we want to forget, and we, we cut budgets. And we just don't make, um, we don't gain ground on these issues that way.
1: And Dr. Offit, I mean, from an information sharing standpoint, is enough of that happening globally? Because as we saw with COVID-19, it has to be a global effort.
3: I don't think so. I mean, you'd like to think that this um, the, the lesson from this pandemic would have been well learned given uh, that it brought our world to its knees. I mean, there's been roughly 7 million people who have died. We shut down our economy in the the year 2020. Um, But I don't think so. I think our memories are kind of short. And we tend to think that this is never going to happen again, even though just in coronaviruses alone, this is our third pandemic potential virus in the last Uh, 20 years. So it's certain that there will be another one. And I'm just not sure that we've learned this lesson. So I think the answer sadly is no.
1: Angie, I'm going to give you the last word here. What are you watching for when it comes to building up the infrastructure globally to try to prevent or at least manage the next pandemic?
5: Well, um, I I just wanted to start by saying that I completely agree with Dr. Offit that I think the only lesson we've learned is that we don't seem to learn from this at all. Um, And so what I'm going to be watching on the global stage is really putting international standards in place. um, And that includes wealthier countries uh, investing in uh, less wealthy countries, low middle income countries, to help them build up this infrastructure too. And on top of that, making policies and agreements that allow countries to work together in a rapid and coordinated manner. That's gonna be really crucial.
1: That's Angie Rasmussen. She's a virologist at the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization at the University of Saskatchewan. She's also an adjunct professor at Stony Brook University. Also with us, Dr. Paul Offit, the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He's also a member of the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Panel. And Dr. Celine Gounder, she's senior fellow and editor-at-large for Public Health with KFF Health News. Angie, Dr. Offit, Dr. Gounder, as always, we appreciate your time. Today's producer Was Chris Remington. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your questions and comments, and we will talk more soon. This is 1A.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives, like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR.